All right. So, <clears throat> uh, real quick, just as a recap from last week uh, and for this week. So we've been covering. Uh, last week we covered Colossians chapter two verses nine through fifteen. Again, we are covering the same exact verses this week. Uh, so last week was kind of like part one of of that section, uh, and we were looking at who is Christ. Right? We wanted to see in that section who is Christ, uh, and so <clears throat> uh, we ended uh, last week's section. Uh, with actually a verse from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. Uh, it says, um, you will keep at perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. Uh, for a steadfast mind is one that trusts in you. Uh, and that you are to trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself is the rock eternal. And so um, we ended with that verse because um, it says, again, you will keep at perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast. The steadfast mind is the one that is fixed upon Christ. Right? But then the next part talks about trusting in the Lord. And so the more we get to know who the Lord is, the easier it is to trust in him. The easier it is to fix our eyes upon him. The easier it is to, to like not be distracted with anyone or anything else to fix our eyes upon him. So in our section in Colossians chapter 2, it's exactly what we're doing. Right? We want to know who is Christ. The more we know him, the easier it is to trust him. And so the five things that we saw in that passage from Colossians uh, about Christ. Number one, he is the Christ. Uh, the, the word Christ meaning Messiah, uh, which also meant the anointed one. So he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. Uh, number two, he is God. Number three, he is the head over every power and authority. That there is nothing in no one who is equal to, who is greater than Christ. He's it. He's on top. Uh, number four, he is humble. So we, we spent the, the first three points talking about how big he is, how amazing he is, how anointed he is, how powerful he is, how he's the head of everyone and everything. And then all of a sudden we find out that this God, this Christ, this Messiah, this anointed one came down not as this like, you know, powerful king. He came down as a baby. He came down born in a manger. He came riding on a donkey. He came in humility. He died a very humiliating and humbling death. And so this Christ, who is the king, who is the sovereign, you know, sovereign uh, power over everyone and everything, he came in humility. And then, of course, the last thing that we looked at was he is alive. That though he died that very humbling and humiliating death, his tomb is now empty. He's alive. Uh, and so this week, again, we're looking at the same exact verses, verses 9 through 15. Uh, and we want to look at this. Because of who Christ is and because of what it is that he has done, now what does that mean for us? Who are we? Who are we? All right, so we looked at who is Christ last week. Now, this week, because of who he is and what it is that he's done, what does that mean for us? What is it that he's accomplished for us? Who are we? So, <clears throat> chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. We'll read it again. It says, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcisions of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So this week again, who are we because of what it is that Christ has done and what it is that he's accomplished for us? 
Five things that we're going to look at this week about who we are, what it is that we've gained from Christ. I'll just list them off quickly, but again, I'll, we'll go through them individually um, in detail. Uh, number one, in Christ, because of what he's done and, and what he's accomplished for us, because of Christ, uh, we have now been brought to fullness. Number two, we have been circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Three, buried with him in baptism and raised again. Four, we are forgiven. And five, saved from the power of sin. And again, we'll go through each one of those in detail. So one, brought to fullness. Two, circumcised with a, with a spiritual circumcision, basically. Three, buried with him in baptism and raised again. Four, forgiven. Five, saved from the power of sin. So number one. In verse 10, it says exactly that. That in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So what does that mean? That word fullness in the original language uh, has been used in other places in this way. It's been used to say to make complete, to be filled to capacity, to fulfill, to cram, as in like to cram, like, a, like a, to give an idea of like to cram a net, to, to like as if a fisherman was like cramming his net, like full of fish, like to cram, uh, to perfect, to finish. And lastly, to satisfy it. To satisfy. Alright? So to make complete, fill to capacity or cram, to fulfill, to perfect, finish, or to satisfy. So in Christ, because of what he's done, this is what he has done for us. He has brought us to fullness. He has made us complete. He is filling us to capacity. He is cramming us with himself. He is perfecting us. He is finishing the work that he has started. He is the one who satisfies us. How so? What does that look like? Colossians, remember way back when we first started Colossians uh, chapter 1, uh, chapter 1 verse 2. As Paul is uh, kind of issuing this letter, as he's, he's starting off this letter, remember this is a letter that Paul is writing. You remember he's in jail. Uh, he has never met this church before, but he's writing to them to encourage them. He's heard about them. So to instruct them, to encourage them, all these things. And how he addresses them, we looked at in verse 2, Paul writes, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers, sister, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember we talked about this is exactly how God views his church. Not only corporately, but how God views us individually. And so what we saw there was, one, we belong to God, right? It says to God's holy people, so we belong to God. God's holy people are not just his possession, but in that, that we, we talk about how that language is also to signify family. I would never say, uh, like, to, you know, about a, uh, a parent or a spouse or about a child, you would never say, oh, this is a dad or this is a spouse or this is a child. No, you would say this is my dad or this is my wife or this is my child. And so when, when we see in this language here that God is saying these are my people, that we belong to God, God is also saying these are my children. These are my people. And in the same way, we say this is my God. So it signifies relationship. And Paul goes on to say that these people who are in relationship with God, us as the church, we're called holy. We are called faithful. And so then we were also, again, trying to trigger everyone's memory. Do we remember, do we see ourselves that way? Do we see ourselves as God's people? Do we see ourselves as sons and daughters of God? Do we see ourselves as holy? Do I believe that you are holy? Do you believe that I am holy? Do you believe that you are faithful? 
Right? It's very easy for us to point out all the things that we've done or to point out like, man, I know that person isn't faithful. I know that person isn't holy. I know this person isn't that. I know what I've done for myself, why, I'm not, why I shouldn't be called holy or why I shouldn't be called faithful. Yet the fact still remains, we are called God's people. We are described as holy. We are described as faithful. So how is, it, how is that possible? How is it that any of this could have happened? How is it that we can actually pray that prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray our Father who art in heaven? How is it that we can actually claim that God is our Father? And by definition, if God is our Father, that means we're His children. How is it that that can be true? How is it that I can actually be called holy knowing the things that I've done, knowing the things that you know, I have failed at? Knowing that sometimes I have spoken something, but I was never, you know, sometimes I wasn't faithful to do as I said I would do. How is it that that's all true? Because the one who is the true Son of God, because the one who has always belonged to God and is God, because the one who has always been holy, the one who has always been faithful, he has fulfilled us. He has brought us to fullness. It's because of Him. It's because of Christ. That we can be called God's people, that we can be called holy, that we can be called faithful. It's because of this. In Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Where you lack, God has brought you to fullness. Where you didn't measure up, measure up God has brought you to fullness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul is writing another letter to a different church. And he writes, God made him, meaning Christ, God made him to, who knew no sin, who had no sin, who never sinned. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So there was an exchange that took place. Christ, who knew no sin, who never sinned, who was always righteous, meaning in right standing with God's law, in right standing with his own law, right? in right standing like he never sinned, God made him to be sin. So that means our sins were laid upon Christ. Christ's righteousness was laid upon us. There was an exchange. We got Christ's righteousness. We got Christ's right standing with God so that now when the Father sees me, when God looks at me, he looks at the righteousness of Christ. The right standing of Christ. And all my sins was laid upon him. So then now, even though I do fall short, even though I don't measure up, I now, because I am in Christ, have been brought to fullness. I can stand before God as holy. I can stand before God as faithful. I can stand before God as his child. I can stand before him as completely righteous because I am in Christ. And Christ, because of what he has done, has brought me to that fullness. He has completed me. He is satisfying me. He is filling me. So in Christ we have been brought to fullness. That also means that this is Christ plus nothing and no one else who has done this. When it says that in Christ you have been brought to fullness, it doesn't say that in Christ plus your works, plus your good, you know, good deeds, plus your good thoughts, plus that one time that you prayed really well, plus that one time you didn't. No, it says in Christ you have been brought to fullness, period. It is not Christ in. Remember, one of the themes of, this, of the book of uh, Colossians is this, is that the gospel is sufficient and satisfies. That it's not Christ and, it's not his work plus somebody else's, it's not his work plus yours, it's not his, it's him that brought you to fullness. Nothing and no one else assisted that, nothing and no one else can help with that, can fill you on top of what God has already done for you, it is Christ alone. 
It was his work that's completing me, finishing me, satisfying me. It's his work that is sufficient to bring you to fullness. And one thing that I hear a lot of is like, but you know, not really, you don't really know what I've done before. You don't really know what my past was like. You don't really know what I've done. You don't really know where I've been. You don't really know the things that be like. So there's this idea, there's these thoughts that, okay, maybe God is good enough for them. Or maybe God is good enough for you guys. Or maybe God is, you know, his work might be good to, to bring you to fulfillment. But you don't know where I've, been, where I've been. You don't know what I've done. And you're right. I don't know what everybody has done. I don't know where everybody has been. I don't know what everybody has been thinking. But it doesn't matter. He does. The one who does know perfectly where you have been, what you have done, what it is that you're thinking at all times, 24-7. Every positive, every negative thought. The God who knows you better than you know yourself. He knows exactly what you've done. And he says, right, the one who is the power and authority above in everyone. The one who is the Christ. The one who is God. The one who is the ultimate authority. He knows exactly what you've done. And he says his work is enough to satisfy you. His work is enough to complete you. His work is enough to bring you to that fullness. So it doesn't matter what you tell me. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter. Because the one who knows you better than you has said, my work is sufficient for you. Sufficient to satisfy you. Sufficient to satisfy his righteous requirement. Sufficient to bring you to fullness. So number one, it's in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Number two, in him, you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. What does that mean? Okay. Um, in the Old Testament, there was a physical circumcision. Uh, and this was a sign uh, between God and Abraham. This was a sign of a covenant that God was making uh, with Abraham. It wasn't the entirety of the covenant. The covenant wasn't just be circumcised. No, it was the sign of the covenant. Of the covenant, You can read that in Genesis 17, specifically verse 11, right, where God says, this is the sign of this covenant that I'm making with you, that I will be your God, you will be my people, I'm going to give you this land, so on and so forth. And the sign of this covenant will be circumcision. Why circumcision? Circumcision was this sign in the flesh, this physical sign of a cutting away, right, of this separation to say, you guys, will be, you guys will do circumcision. No one else around you does circumcision. And so this cutting away, physically speaking, is to show that you have been cut away, so to speak, from this world. Or that you have been separated from this world. That you will be my people. So you have been separated to be mine. To be my people. So the sign of that cutting away, the sign of that separation was circumcision. That's what the point thing was, though, when it came to circumcision, it wasn't the circumcision itself that saved the Israelites. It wasn't the, the, the circumcision itself that said, now these people will be in right relationship with God. Now God will love them. Now God will bless them. Now God will provide for them. Now God will hear them. Now God, no, no, no. It wasn't the circumcision itself that saved them, that brought them into this relationship with God. It was the sign of the relationship that God had already produced for them. God was always, always, always more concerned with the matters of the heart than any work in the flesh. Even if it was a work in the flesh that he told them to do. He was always more concerned with the heart. What good would it have been if the Israelites all got circumcised and yet their heart was far from God? 
If they didn't want to do anything that God had to say, if they didn't want to listen to God, if they didn't want to obey God, if the only thing they wanted to obey is, we will do the circumcision, but we won't do anything else, what good, what good is that? Made no difference. And so God was always more concerned with the issue of the heart. He even says in the Old Testament, uh, through Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So this physical circumcision was always pointing to something else, to a spiritual one, a circumcision of the heart. Through Ezekiel, God says this, Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put in you a new spirit. I will remove from your heart, I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. If you think of a physical heart, one of stone does you no good. One of stone is not going to beat. One of stone is not going to pump blood throughout your body. One of stone is stubborn. One of stone is, is it's useless. It's dead. Can't do anything with a heart of stone. So it needs to be replaced. Like a lot of times when we see the word flesh in the Bible, we think of like the negative, the bad, the sinful flesh. In this case, this is not what it's talking about. It's talking about one that is alive. One that can actually pump blood throughout the body. One that will actually give life. So God says, you have a heart of stone. You have this uncircumcised heart, this heart that is far from me, that is against me, that will not love me, that will not turn towards me. So I will take out this heart of stone. We will cut that away and put in you a heart of flesh, one that is alive, one that will listen to me, one that will love me. So God has always, even in the Old Testament, has been talking about this spiritual circumcision, this cutting away of what is old, this cutting away of what is evil, this cutting away so that we can be separated unto him, to love him. So this physical circumcision in the Old Testament, it was a sign of this ultimate work that God was going to do. God was always more concerned with a spiritual circumcision. So what is the spiritual circumcision then? Paul says, your whole self, in verse 11, your whole self was ruled by the flesh. Uh, Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. It's the old self that's now being cut away. The old self that is now being cut away. This is a work that can only be done by God. This is where God, again, takes out that heart of stone and puts in that heart of flesh. The heart that was anti-God, the heart that was against God, the heart that was dead. And now he puts in the heart of flesh. The heart that beats, the heart that's alive, the heart that loves God, the heart that turns towards God. What's the evidence of that? Is there evidence of this work that God is doing in us? Is there evidence of this circumcision that Christ is doing in us? That Christ has done for us? His saving work is proven to us by this cutting away of old desires. The way I used to think, the way I used to act, the way I used to speak, the things I used to believe about myself, about others, about life in general, everything about me began to change the moment I began the moment I was in this relationship with him, the moment that God began to do that work in me, everything began to change. Now, did everything, like, all of a sudden, like, all my, like, 1,000% all change? No, 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 of course not. Do I still struggle with some things? Of course. But now there's something different. What didn't bother me before, like, I could have been smoking, I could have been drinking, I could have been, you know, doing whatever. It didn't bother me before. So what? I do what I want to do. But then as God began to work in me, 
began, as God began to move in me, now there's something that bothered me about it. What didn't bother me before all of a sudden bothers me now. Why? God is cutting away those desires because he has separated me for his purpose. He has separated me as one of his children. The old self has now been put off. And now this heart of flesh has now been put in. And so now this heart of flesh now begins to desire God, begins to love God, begins to seek God, begins to acknowledge God, begins to want what God wants. And begins to fight against what my flesh wants. Begins to fight against what I, I don't want that anymore. I don't know why, but I don't want this life anymore. I don't want that anymore. I don't want these things anymore. But now I want this. Now I want him. Right? That's evidence of that circumcision in me. I begin to believe God, desire God, seek God, love God, and this is only possible because of the work that Christ has done in me. That's the evidence of that circumcision that God is doing in me, that God has performed in me, and that God has performed in you. So in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. This is a spiritual one, only performed by Christ. You can't do it. Only you can. Number three, verse 12. You're buried with him in baptism and raised with him. Buried with him in baptism and raised with him. Go back to the Old Testament for a second. Another Old Testament practice, and we, and we still see this, of course, now, uh, fasting. But it always looked a little bit different. And you all tie this together while I'm talking about fasting for a second. Um, it always looked a little bit different in the Old Testament. Whenever they were fasting in the Old Testament, it was usually because they were mourning. Like something really bad was about to happen or something really bad did happen. Right? That God was either pronouncing some kind of judgment. Uh, there was some kind of sickness. There was some kind of disease. There was like something terrible was happened. Someone died or something like that. Right? Something really bad happened. And so what would they do? They would go into this mourning and fasting. They would always put on the sackcloth uh, and ashes and all this stuff. And like what was the point of all of that? Why, why do like, – why be so – seemed like extra basically. Like sackcloth is, is made out of goat hair. It's very uncomfortable. It's very itchy. Why put on that? Why put on all this dust and dirt and mud and all this stuff all over your body? You know, it just has like, to, be, to go a part of your, your fasting and mourning. The reason was this. When they put on the sackcloth, that was very uncomfortable. When they put on the dirt and the mud and that, that was gross and ugly and all this stuff, it was supposed to be a physical expression of the uncomfortability and of the pain and the anguish that was going on the inside. So it's an outward expression of the pain that was going on inside. The, the uncomfortability on the outside, when I put the goat hair you know, sackcloth on, and it's uncomfortable, and it's gross, and this, that, and the other, it's supposed to be this outward expression, this public display of the pain that I'm feeling on the inside. The reason why I bring that up. Baptism is basically the same thing in this way. Baptism is an outward expression of the work that is happening on the inside. Baptism is this public display, this public declaration of God's work on the inside. So as fasting in the Old Testament, when they put on the sackcloth and all that, it was supposed to be this public display of the pain that I'm feeling on the inside. Baptism now, for us, is this public declaration of God's work on the inside. I am now, I want to display, I want to declare, I want to shout, I want to do all these things out outwardly to display and to show what's going on inwardly. I'm publicly declaring... Verse 13, I was once dead in my sins and in the uncircumcision of my flesh, but God made me alive in Christ. That's what baptism is. 
I'm publicly declaring that I was once dead. That I was dead. That I had no hope. That I had no life. That I had nothing apart from Christ. But because of Christ, I am now alive. Because Christ lives, I live. Because Christ loves me, I live. Because Christ has forgiven me, I live. So that baptism is that public declaration that I was once dead, but now I'm alive. That's what I'm declaring in baptism. When you go into the water, physically speaking, this is the sign that's, that, that you are declaring. This is a sign that you are believing. You are believing, you're publicly declaring your belief in and identifying with Christ's death and burial. So when you go into the water, you're saying Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ went through a horrible and humiliating and disgusting death. When you go into the water, that's exactly what you're proclaiming, that Christ died. And that I too am now dying as well. I'm identifying myself with Christ's death and that the old self is dead. That old self is being cut away. That old self has been put off. The old self is now dead. That's what we're declaring when you go into the water. I'm identifying with Christ's death. I believe in Christ's death. Just as Christ died, I too I was dead in my sins. And now, now the old self that was dead in its sin stays dead, remains dead. But then now when you raise out of that water, we are publicly declaring and identifying with Christ's resurrection. Christ, was, Christ did not remain dead, he is alive. And because Christ lives, and just as Christ was raised from the grave, when we are raised out of the water, we are declaring that we have a new life in Christ. I'm alive. Because Christ lives, I live. I have this new life in Christ. New desires, new hopes, a new future, a new, like, everything that I couldn't have done on my own, I now have because of Christ. Because He now lives, I live. Just as Christ was raised, I have faith that I live too. The heart of stone is now gone, and I am now living this new life with Christ and in Christ. This is why baptism is super important. Uh, it's not, again, it's not the baptism itself that saves anyone. But it is what you are declaring when you are baptized. That is important. To publicly declare, this is what God has done for me. That was number three. Number four. Uh, verse 13 and 14, or halfway through 13 and 14. Because of Christ, I am forgiven. Because of Christ, I am forgiven. Paul writes, he forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Number one, part of, of, of number four, but still like number one of number four. All of our sins, not some, not partial, not only the past ones, not only, you know, 2021, not all of our sins. Past, present, future, all of them. All of them have been forgiven in Christ. All of your sins, all of our sins, all of my sins, every single one of them. The ones I don't know about, the ones I forgot about, the ones I haven't committed yet. All of our sins have been forgiven in Christ. That is huge. All of our sins forgiven. It says that we were legally indebted to God. There is a legal debt. Because of our sins, we are legally indebted to God. 
There is a law that God has given, and that God, because he is God, and again, he is the head over every power and authority, and he is the one who created everything and is responsible for everything, he gets to decide what the rules are. It's his game. He created us. He gets to choose. And the rules of this game, he showed us in the law. And we have violated every single one of those rules. We have fallen short of every single one of those. And because we have violated his rules, we have violated his law, his, his commands, he has said that there is a debt now. There is a debt. We have completely failed at upholding it. And now some people might think like, oh, I mean, I'm not that bad. Like, I've done some pretty good things in my life. Yeah, okay, maybe I wasn't like perfect, but like, I'm not that bad. I'm not Hitler. I'm not like one of those guys. Here's how I can prove. There's so many ways to prove that you have failed miserably, that I have failed miserably at upholding God's law. How many of us here have ever set some kind of goal? Exactly. Before I even said anything, you already put a standard. He knows. <laughs> How many of us here have ever set some kind of standard for ourselves and said, okay, you know what? Um, from now on, I'm going to start doing this. Or from now on, I'm going to stop doing this. Uh, how many of us have ever set some kind of goal like that? Some kind of New Year's resolution? We probably don't even remember what our New Year's resolutions are. Uh, how many of us are doing 50 hard right now uh, and are not really succeeding at 50 hard right now? Uh, I'm not going to say any names, everybody. Uh, how many of us have set some kind of standard, some kind of goal, some kind of quote-unquote law for ourselves to say, like, I'm going to do this, and then quickly found out we didn't even uphold that? How many of us are that? That should be everybody's hand. Everybody. We have all set some kind of standard for ourselves at some point and have failed at meeting that standard. So what does that have? You know, when that usually happens, what do we usually do? We lower the bar. Right? We just make it easier to hit the standard. Some of us, in some things, in some areas of our life, we have set the bar so low, the bar is in hell. Like, it is so low, and yet we still fail to hit that standard. So if we have failed to hit our own standard, that is changing constantly. That is, right, you know, like, it, it changes based on my beliefs. It changes based on, you know, what I feel like that day. It changes on, you know, what's going on in my life. It changes on just whatever I just, you know what, this is kind of feeling a little too difficult. Let me just change. Like, it changes on so many different variables. If we can't even hit that, oh, we have failed at hitting God's. God's standard, that never has changed. That has always been perfect. That has always been high. That has always been good. We have failed. If we can't even hit our own standard, we should never think we'll ever hit God's. Never. We failed. And so because of that failure, there's now a debt. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. What are your wages? When you go to work, you expect to earn a wage. Your wages is what you earned, Right? What you worked for, it's what you deserve. The wages, what is earned, deserved, worked for, of sin, is death. What we deserve, what we have earned, what we have worked for, is death. That's what we get. Because of that debt that now needs to be paid, how is it going to be paid? Death. 
That's our wages. That's what we deserve. God's law says that's what we've earned, that's what we've worked for, that's what we've deserved. But that debt now in Christ has been canceled. Canceled. The legal debt that now stood against us, the legal debt that is demanding payment, the legal debt that is condemning us away from God and to hell, that debt has been canceled. Canceled. Now here's the thing about a canceled debt in this particular case. The canceled debt doesn't mean unpaid debt. It's not the same thing. Just because you didn't pay for it, and just because I didn't pay for it, doesn't mean that nobody paid. The canceled debt doesn't mean unpaid debt. Christ paid. God looked at our sin. God knowing exactly what it is that we've done. God knowing the requirement that was needed to pay that debt, said they won't pay. I will. God paid that debt. He canceled your debt by paying it himself. The rest of Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift, what you didn't deserve, what you didn't earn, what you didn't work for, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. The wages of sin, what you, the wages, again, what you earned, deserved, worked for, death. But the gift, what you didn't deserve, what you didn't earn, what you didn't work for, the gift of God that he gives you is eternal life in Christ. He canceled your debt. He took away that legal debt, and it says it was nailed to the cross. When Christ died, when Christ suffered, when Christ was pinned to that cross, pinned with him, was that debt, that legal debt, that very real debt, that you and I were supposed to pay. That was nailed with him. Because of Christ, we are forgiven. Let me stay on that for just a second. Don't, don't forget that. Don't treat that so lightly. I think sometimes, we were talking about this a little bit on Sunday too, just like what exactly Christ went through on the cross. And he suffered. He really did. He really suffered for you and I. And I think sometimes we, we hear the word cross so much, we think of the cross so much, we see it so much that it like, the cross never loses its power, but because of how we treat it or because of what we think about it or because of how often we, we hear the word or something, I think in that sense it loses its power. And we forget what exactly took place. You deserve death. You don't deserve to hear from God. You don't deserve to be in a relationship with you don't deserve to have this fellowship. We don't deserve any of this. We deserve nothing from Him. Yet Christ, knowing that, because of His love for you and I, said, I will give them everything, though they deserve nothing. I will love them, though they don't love me. I will show them mercy, though they, 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 they won't show mercy to each other. He has done so much. He took all of our sins and said, it's good. I wipe it away, it's clean. Don't forget that. You can always come back to the cross whenever there's any kind of question, whenever there's any kind of hurt, whenever there's any kind of anxiety, whenever there's any kind of, like, just whatever it is, I can always come back to the cross. We always, whenever we doubt God, remember we talked about where do our problems normally come from? We either don't believe God, we either don't know God, 
We don't, we've forgotten what he has said. We either don't know him, don't believe him, or we've forgotten what he said. And when that happens, we can always come back to the cross. Lord, what, do you actually love me? Go to the cross. Do you actually have a plan for me? Why would God go through that and not have a plan for you? Are you actually going to take care of me? Go to the cross. I can always, 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 always come to the cross. Like, Lord, is your work really enough to forgive me? Go to the cross. I can always come to the cross. Always. So don't forget that. Meditate on the cross. Think about the cross. Go to the cross, so to speak. And don't go from there. Don't move from that. Stay there. Number five. Verse 15. We are saved from the power of sin. Verse 15 says, In having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, meaning Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So God has dealt with the penalty of sin. He paid the debt himself. So God has dealt with the penalty of sin. And in dealing with the penalty of sin, he also dealt with the power of sin. God has dealt with the penalty of sin. And in dealing with that penalty, he's also dealt with the power of sin. Paul writes in Romans 6, uh, 14, he says, Sin shall no longer be your master because now you are under grace. You are no longer ruled by sin. The old self that you, uh, as Paul writes in verse 11 here, uh, your whole self that was ruled by the flesh, that was put off. It's been put off. You are no longer ruled by sin. Sin no longer has a hold on you. Sin no longer has dominion, no longer has power, authority over you. Why? Because of Christ. Because Christ, who is the head of every power, over every power and every authority, it says that he disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over them by the cross. He disarmed, made a public spectacle of, meaning he humiliated Satan. Humiliated, made a public spectacle of them and triumphed over. Disarmed, made a public spectacle of, made a, uh, and triumphed over. Every power, every authority, including sin. So sin, the power of sin, the strength of sin, has now been dealt with because of Christ. Sin no longer has a hold on you. Because of what Christ has done, because of who He is, because of what He's accomplished for you, what does that mean for me? Sin no longer has a hold on me. Sin no longer has power over me. That's amazing. Because there's so many temptations. There are so many sins that we fall into that we feel so helpless with. That we feel like, that's it. I'm never going to be free from this. I'm never going to find freedom in this. I'm, never gonna, I'm always going to be struggling with this. I'm always going to be dealing with this. Sin doesn't have a hold on you anymore. And this isn't to condemn anyone. This isn't to say that our struggles isn't real, that the temptations aren't real. Why? Because we have been saved from the power of sin. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. But we have not yet been saved from the presence of sin. We still live in a fallen world. We still live. Like we're still dealing with the effects of sin. But I can find comfort that the power of sin and the penalty of sin dealt with. And that one day the presence of sin will also finally be dealt with. 
One final note uh, before we closed. Been saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, not yet saved from the presence of sin. One of the biggest things that I hear uh, when it comes to dealing with some kind of temptation is I see a lot of people trying to deal with it themselves in that, you know, uh, I'm, not gonna do, I'm not gonna deal with this or I'm not gonna do this thing. I'm not gonna watch that thing. I'm not gonna go to that place. I'm not gonna do it. 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 Right? We keep telling ourselves, like, we wanna fight this thing. And they're, they're, it comes from a good place, I believe. Right? This desire to not want that temptation, this desire to not want whatever that thing is because now the old self has been put off, right? The new self is here. The new heart has been put in and we desire different things. And so the desire to, to not want the old things, that's a, good, that's a good thing. But how we deal with it sometimes is very ineffective. And so, I want to just kind of a quick example to show how we deal with it sometimes. Um, next. Come on. Naz is a big Phoenix Suns fan. I'm also a big Phoenix Suns fan. Uh, Naz, do you remember? Do you remember in the bubble? You know, eight and no. Oh, yeah. no, of course. Eight yeah. no. Yeah, perfect. Uh, I think it was the third game. Okay. Devin Booker's game winner. Yeah, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. Beautiful. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. He's talking about, so there was a game winner that the Phoenix Suns hit, specifically Devin Booker, who is your favorite player. Player, amazing. Uh, hit a game winner, amazing shot over two people. Over two people. All right. Beautiful. Can you picture that? That moment. Wow. I have him laying down with this. Exactly. Perfect. What else do you remember from that? Anything like, else? The whole scene? Anything? What else? Everybody going. Yep. Perfect. Uh, let me just, let's just pull this up and see if this looks. Here is just a quick little video of that. You can watch this all day. You can watch this all day. Now I know what happens. What? Turn around. Stop. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you remember that scene? Yes. You've seen that. Probably a bunch of times. Yes. Okay. Now, what I want you to do, I'm going to give you $100. Okay. okay? $100. Do not think about the Phoenix Suns. Do not think about Devin Booker. Do not think about this game being shot. Do not think about that turnaround jumper over Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. Don't think about how it was a foul. Don't think about anything Phoenix Suns related. Do not think about it. Don't think about it. Right now? Right now. Like, right now. <laughs> do not think about this video. Don't think about this. Don't do it. I'm going to give you $100. Okay. But just don't think about the Phoenix Suns. I'm not thinking The Phoenix Suns. Right here. Don't think about it. Don't think about that jersey. Don't think about it. I think you have, you have a Devin Booker jersey. You got the Phoenix Suns. Don't think about that. Don't think about this shot. Don't think about how Aiden you know, threw that ball out and you know, Booker ended up getting the ball, drive it down, five seconds, boom, turn around, pop. Don't think about it. Why are you thinking about it? It's $100. Don't think about it. Stop thinking about the Phoenix Suns so I can give you this $100. Would you just stop thinking about the Phoenix Suns? I can't. You can't do it. Now I'm thinking about it. Don't think about it. You're thinking about the next season. You see your eyes? You're still thinking about the Phoenix Suns. Yeah. And I told you, don't think about the Phoenix Suns so I can give you this $100. Yeah. But you're still thinking about the Phoenix Suns. Still doing impossible. it. Impossible. Impossible. Right, right now? Yeah, right now. In an hour no, 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 right now. Don't do it. Shame. Right. Well, I'll try. <laughs> try to give him $100. That's all I'll give it up for now. Nope. <laughs> it's all or nothing. All right. What's the point of it? Kept telling him, do not think about the Phoenix Suns. 
even though I put the video on his face, we're talking about the scene. He obviously knew the scene before I even pulled it up here. He knew exactly what I was talking about. This is exactly what we do when we tell ourselves, I'm not going to do that thing. 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 That's exactly, you are meditating on the very thing you don't want to do. You have been thinking about the one thing you don't want to do all day. So what are you going to end up doing? hear that a lot, especially when it comes to porn, by the way, especially when it comes to that. I'm not going to watch it. 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 It's not going to help. It's not going to help. Very practically speaking. So rather than meditating on the one thing that you don't want to do, meditate on this, that you've been saved from the power of sin, that you've been saved from the penalty of sin. Meditate on Christ. Meditate on the cross. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, meditate on such things. Meditate on those. Think about those. Think about Christ's goodness. Think about his mercy. Think about his love. Think about his word. Think about the cross. Think about him. Think about how he has saved you. Think about all these other things. Meditate on those things and then you will see how the power of sin no longer has a hold on. Don't meditate on the one thing. The presence of sin is still there. The temptations are still around us. So rather than focusing on that, focus on Him. It's one tiny little practical thing that maybe we can start all employing in our lives. It'll help us out a little bit. To really begin to see the power that God has given us over sin. He's given us the power to say no to all ungodliness, yes to all righteousness. That's what his word says. That is not, again, an indictment to condemn anyone. That is not to say like, oh, because now you're a Christian, you better be perfect from here on out. Or the moment you get baptized, your life is going to be perfect. Or the moment that you begin to follow Christ, your life is going to be perfect. No. It's not. But thankfully, we have a God who has already forgiven us, past, present, and future, Thankfully, we have a God who has dealt with the power of sin in our life. Thankfully, we have a God who loves us so much and is still working on us. Meditate on that. That is what Christ says about you. Because of who he is and what he's done, these are the things that Christ now says about you. This is what Christ says that is true about you. And the more we see God rightly, the more we begin to see everything else rightly, including us, what he says about us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for how you view us and what it is that you have done for us. Lord, we could have never done this for ourselves. Lord, you are so much better than we know. And I pray in Jesus' mighty name that you would open up our eyes, open up our ears to know that, to hear that, to really believe it in Jesus' name. Teach us who you have called us to be. Teach us who you are. May we see your power over sin in our life. May we see how, just how much it is that you have forgiven us, Lord. Just that much more. Your word says, as far as the east is from the west, you have blotted out your sins. Blotted out our sins, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for that. We honor you, Lord, for that. Father, I pray for anyone who is struggling right now. 
who is really feeling like there's no hope for them, who's really feeling like maybe God, you can forgive, but you just can't forgive this one thing, I pray in the name of Jesus for just that revelation that you are good enough, that your sacrifice is good enough. It is more than enough. That sin no longer has a hold over anyone here. That the legal debt that we owe has been paid in full. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for how you view us. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us holy and faithful. Thank you that you have called us yours. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you are doing in us, what you have cut away, and what you are planting in us. Father, we honor you, we bless you, we love you, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. Help us to always fix our eyes upon you. In Jesus' mighty name we all pray. Amen. Amen.